Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Chris Fetweiss, professor of political science at Tulane University, a Cato adjunct scholar, and author of the new book, Pursuit of Dominance, 2,000 Years of Superpower Grand Strategy, published by Oxford. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. In the introduction to this book, you write that this is a book about how strong countries endeavor to stay that way. For those who don't know, what is grand strategy? Grand strategy is how countries identify their interests and pursue them. Uh, there's a lot of different kinds of ways people talk about it, a lot of different ways people talk about strategy. But the thing that separates, that makes grand strategy grand is that it is the way it is. It also involves uh, countries identifying what is important, what is not, prioritizing their interests. It's the way that we figure out what is important to us and how we go about pursuing it. And what makes it strategy, which makes it different from just planning, is that there's somebody else out there. There's another actor. There are other countries pursuing their interests too, which sometimes uh, line up with ours. Sometimes they conflict with ours. But we have to deal with the universe of other people and of other states. So we have to think strategically. We have to think about how our actions are going to, what you're going to make them do and how do we get them to do what we want them to do. So it's the highest level of strategic thinking that any country goes into. And every country does it, whether they realize it or not. So what you're doing in this book is you're looking at um, superpowers throughout history, and uh, you're evaluating their grand strategies and just unpacking the history to see what lessons uh, there are for us. And your first case study is ancient Rome. What was the Pax Romana, and what kind of strategies characterized this period? Uh, the Peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, was the time that the Romans ruled over the Mediterranean world and brought peace to it. Now, it might not have seemed too peaceful for those people they conquered, but it seems to be those peoples who were part of the Roman Empire liked to be part of it. There were very few revolutions. There were very few rebellions. There were some, but not you know, over the course of a thousand years, not too many. And they brought peace to the region, and it had really no external threats. And they more or less recognized it for a long time. They recognized that they were pretty safe, and they tried to figure out, okay, how do we stay this way? How do we continue to be not only dominant, but safe and prosperous? And they did a pretty good job for a couple of hundred years. Uh, and that was, the, the, when people talk about the Pax Romana, that's the absolute height of it. Somewhere around, uh, you know, uh, depending on who was talking about it, 70 AD to either 180 or, or straight through to the fourth century, they fought themselves sometimes, but didn't have to worry about external problems uh, and brought peace to the Mediterranean for the first and only time. At what point in Rome's history did uh, Trajan and Hadrian come to power? And in what ways did they represent the two ideal types of Roman grand strategy? Right. About a hundred years after Christ, a guy named Hadrian, what they say, took the purple, became emperor. And he wanted to be, he imagined himself being like Alexander the Great. He wanted to expand the empire. He wanted to shower himself and the empire with glory. So he attacked some neighbors. He attacked Parthia, which is Persia, modern-day Iran. And he attacked into Dacia, or more roughly modern-day Romania, two of Rome's neighbors. Big, big operations. Some, people, some, some of our sources point to numbers that would make it the biggest operation in Roman history. And everybody loved it. It was very popular. Uh, they, they, he... Conquered both of these places, 
and they made a big column to Trajan, which is still there in Rome, celebrating his successes. And then his successor, who he adopted, the way the Romans got around succession problems, they would just figure out somebody who looked like who would make a good emperor, and they would adopt them. So Trajan adopted this guy named Hadrian, and he comes into power with a totally different view of what the what, what is right for the empire, and what the grand strategy should be. And he he pulls back, abandons Hadrian's um, abandons Trajan's conquests. Uh, pulls out of Parthia, pulls out of most of Dacia, and builds walls. Hadrian, if, if people know anything about Hadrian, they know that he built a wall in England and a bunch of other walls around. Not so much to keep the barbarians, as they called them, out, because there wasn't a problem. They weren't coming in. But to keep the Romans in, to make it clear where the empire ended and, it's, and, and what the frontiers were, which is sort of strange to think that they hadn't thought about that much, or they hadn't at least identified clear frontiers to that point, but they hadn't really. And Hadrian thought it'd be better to have uh, to, to have a restrained approach to strategy. He saw himself more like Augustus, the first big, the first Roman emperor after the Republic. Augustus supposedly, on his dying and his deathbed, said something along the lines of, "Don't expand the empire anymore." which was kind of hypocritical because he had expanded it a lot, but he said, we're safe where we are, essentially. And those two precedents, whether emperors saw themselves as Alexander the Great and went off a conquering, or Augustus and remained restrained and kept the empire in its current borders, really are the two poles, the two ideal types of Roman grand strategy over time. And generally speaking, those who followed Augustus and Hadrian did better. Uh, they, they, they ruled over more peaceful, prosperous times than the Trajans of, the, of their time or the, uh, the, um, the Alexanders the Great. So let's, uh, let's unpack some of the causes of Rome's decline. You quote the historian Peter Heather as saying, quote, by virtue of its own unbounded aggression, Roman imperialism was ultimately responsible for its own destruction. Talk about that. Yeah, they didn't treat their neighbors well, as you probably know. And the main the, the main reason why Rome fell, and there's been hundreds of different suggestions, hundreds of different theories about why it fell. But the peoples around the empire, the barbarians as they called them, became more numerous, partially because they learned how to they were interacting with Rome, uh, and they just became more there was a heck of a lot more Goths in the 5th century than there were in the 3rd century. And then these sort of, this gang of antisocials from the steppe, the Huns, as we all we all heard of Attila, came roaring down and smashed into these peoples, these bloated populations, and sent them going over the border into Rome. And the Romans didn't treat them too well, and the Romans could not stop fighting each other long enough to, to fight, to have a concentrated effort against these barbarian incursions. So that's the main reason they failed. They, 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 as you said, they had mistreated, especially the Parthians. Uh, I mentioned that, that Emperor Trajan had uh, invaded Parthia. And the Romans, after Trajan, any emperor who saw himself, imagined himself being Alexander the Great, marched into the Parthian capital and burned it to the ground. Uh, and eventually the Parthian dynasty fell and was replaced by these folks called the Sassanids, who were much tougher and much, much more of a problem for Rome. 
but the main reason the Parthians fell is because they kept being humiliated by Rome. And the Romans brought about a much tougher group of folks on their border, which also caused problems as the uh, barbarians were storming in from the north. So had they been, had they treated their neighbors better over, over, over time, they probably wouldn't have had the Sassanids to worry about. They probably wouldn't have had as many problems with the Goths, who they horribly mistreated as they came in. But they couldn't have done anything about the bloated populations. And if they, so it, it was going to fall eventually, probably, but the Romans hastened it with some bad ideas and bad policies. The next uh, historical case study that you look at is the Tang Dynasty, which you say depended more on soft power than hard power. What do you mean by that? It is sort of surprising for people to think about. In almost all the cases in my book, the dominant power had the best military of the time. The most the Roman legions were the best, and the British Navy was su superior to all others. The Chinese and the Tang Dynasty, which is late Middle Ages, 600s to 900s, they didn't have the best military of their time. In fact, they repeatedly got beaten by much bigger, by much smaller formations or much smaller units from either the steppe or from the Tibet or from other people. They repeatedly got beat. Uh, and they would occasionally win, of course, on the battlefield, but only when they had overwhelming numbers or mercenaries fighting with them or both. So the Tang had to re rely on other tools other to, to sustain their dominance. And they had a, what is sort of strange to think, a soft power empire. They had, they led with diplomacy and economic growth, economic interaction. They tried to understand the peoples around them. They tried to sinicize them or make them Chinese. Uh, and, and to a large degree, succeeded. Succeeded in transforming their region. When the, when the Tang emperors came to power, they were sort of loosely identified and very disparate peoples all around them. By the time they left, 300 years later, they were surrounded by states that were quite like themselves, especially in Japan and in Korea and in modern-day Vietnam. Uh, not so much in the steppe, where the warriors were much different. But the Tang, Tang emperors succeeded in transforming some of those their neighbors to look more like themselves in the under the idea that they uh, they'll be easier to deal with easier to manage if and if they recognize chinese leadership and everything from religion to the way they put together their uh, their their uh, government to their economies their alphabet poetry histories everything was eventually eventually adopted along the chinese model and that was not an accident they they tried to do this they tried to transform what, who, the peoples they saw as barbarians uh, in order to have them uh, be easier to deal with and easier to lead. And they essentially laid the foundation for what we think of today as East Asia, East Asian values and East Asian ways of life and ways of thinking. Uh, it, the Chinese emperors did not have and still don't have a big tradition in their society of valuing warriors as much as, say, Europe did at the time. In Europe, every kid wanted to be a knight. They all learned archery and sword play if they could. In China, that wasn't the case. They, uh, there's an old saying by Confucius that the lowliest poet is more glorious than the mightiest soldier, mightiest general. Uh, so they didn't have this martial tradition. So they had to figure out other ways to be to lead, to be dominant, to be safe, and to pursue their grand strategy. And they did, which was uh, a heck of a heck of an accomplishment. Part of what I get from this chapter and part of what you just went over is that there were many things in Chinese culture that 
shaped the state's strategy and encouraged official prudence and, and therefore, at times, at least avoided overexpansion. Talk a little bit about that because it, uh, it's a poke in the paradigm wars uh, about uh, how much a state's culture influences its foreign policy. Um, and then also maybe talk about the extent to which you think China's rise in the contemporary world is going to be constrained by cultural factors in a similar way? That's a great question. And I wish I knew for sure, because what you're talking about, these cultural factors are what sometimes in nerd speak, we say uh, strategic culture. The, the ideas that drive the strategic choices a country makes, and they may be different from country to country. Some countries, some cultures are much more martial, much more warlike than others. Uh, the un Unfortunately for the Chinese, which who, when they had a especially in the Middle Ages and early Chinese culture, they did not have a big military tradition. They didn't value military life. Uh, the best and brightest in their societies didn't go into the military, but their neighbors did. They had some really martial warlike people right on their borders. Uh, so the, the various Turkish peoples uh, that came running out of the steppe on occasion and would really make life miserable a small group of Turks could overwhelm and defeat a huge Chinese armies because they had just a, a greater tradition and strategic culture wrapped around the military. Now, what does that mean for today? I don't know. I don't know how, uh, and you can't necessarily extrapolate history through the present. And it's certainly true that the Chinese have spent a lot of money and time thinking about their military today, but they are not spending too much on it. They spend only about half as a percentage of their GDP that we do on our military. And there's a bunch of sort of untranslatable con uh, uh, concepts in China that are still out there that's, that still uh, denigrate or they don't look, they don't value military force and uh, especially conquest. And the last time the Chinese fought any of their neighbors, uh, tried to conquer a neighbor was 1979 and it only took a couple of months and it didn't work out well. Uh, they have a long history of military underperformance. That doesn't mean we should get cocky and think that they are underperform again. But if history means anything, maybe their less martial culture might make, a, make China less likely to go to war than we think they would. And if they do go to war, less likely to do well at it. At least that's what some of their history uh, has shown. And that doesn't mean it's going to happen today. But it might. We have to see. You opened chapter four with a provocative claim. Why do you think Western civilization was saved by alcohol? <laughs> right. Luckily for Western civilization, the Mongol kings, the Khans, loved to drink. It was, Western civilization was saved by alcohol first when, I don't know if it was exactly saved in quite the same way, but Attila the Hun died after drinking too much after one of his weddings. But there was a great Khan in the Mongols who died as the Mongol armies were pushing into Europe. And the Mongol armies just stopped. And then because they figured there's going to be a succession problem, they might have to have a civil war. If it hadn't been for that over drinking, they would have kept on going. There's no way the European armies could have stopped the Mongols from sweeping right into Paris and sweeping right down into Rome if they wanted to. And after the, uh, after the succession was straightened out, they didn't come back. And historians have wondered for a long time, why didn't the Mongols come into Europe? I think the main reason was it wasn't that big a prize. In the, in the 13th century. There, Europe was relatively poor. There was a lot more wealth in China. There was a lot more wealth in the Middle East. And these are the places that the Mongols steamrolled 
uh, and they just decided that there wasn't that it wasn't that big a target wouldn't have brought that much glory or riches to sweep into Paris and Rome. Uh, but there was a lot to go if they went over through the Song Dynasty in China, and they did because they were the most unstoppable war machine of all time. The exact opposite of the Tang Chinese, the the relatively small Mongol nation was incredibly militarized and incredibly efficient and basically unstoppable for about 50 years and and, it, and quite good for the next 50 after that. So it was lucky for the Europeans that the Mongols also drank themselves into oblivion over and over and over, uh, partially because they got used to how much to drink, but they, had, they used to drink this apparently fermented mare's milk, which all travelers say was absolutely putrid, but it wasn't, didn't have that much alcohol. So they could drink a ton of it, but they started to get exposed to wines in various places and drank the same amounts of wine as they had this fermented mare's milk, drank themselves into early graves over and over. Uh, but specifically that one time without over drinking of the great Khan, the Europe would have been swept under the Mongol heel, almost certainly. One feature I noticed in this chapter about Mongol strategy is that they were pretty brutal, but they did diplomacy pretty well. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, some people say that they are they gave birth to modern diplomacy, and that might be a bit of a exaggeration. But they did have standing delegations uh, in in various capitals, and they treat they came up with perhaps or start they had a strong tradition of what we would think of today as diplomatic immunity. That if you sent somebody like Marco Polo or somebody like there's the Pope sent some uh, uh, delegations on occasion to meet the great Khan, you could be sure that you weren't going to be mistreated. You're going to be treated well. You're going to be an honored guest. And they expected Mongol delegations sent elsewhere to be treated the same way. Now, unfortunately, a lot of those Mongol delegations would go places and say, you better surrender because we're coming here and you're going to be part of our empire the hard way or the easy way. And a lot of medieval kings didn't take well to that. And a lot of times they would end up leaving with their head in their hands, uh, literally. And that would there's no faster way to make the Mongol great Khan mad than to mistreat his diplomats. And they, that happened over and over again, that people did. And next thing you know, the Mongol hordes would be sweeping into Baghdad or sweeping into Hangzhou in China or wherever, whoever had mistreated his delegates uh, and, and diplomats before. Uh, nobody learned because they kept doing it and the Mongols kept sweeping in and taking their revenge on the poor people of the town. It seems like um, a big advantage in Mongol strategy was their nomadic nature. And uh, at a certain point, they decided to establish a capital uh, on a fixed piece of land and that, that might have uh, been their undoing. Is that right? Sort of, yeah. It, it definitely divided the Mongols. Um, between they, eventually they decided we need to have some place for these people to send their envoys. We need to have a capital because the entire nation used to move together and very nomadic, as you said. Uh, so they decide to establish a capital and they became less nomadic and that you know, conservative elements in the Mongol nation that liked their old warlike nomadic ways. And that created some divisions and they ended up like a lot of these great empires falling because they couldn't stop fighting each other. They, the, the successors of Genghis, especially his great-grandkids, were fighting like crazy. And even though other armies couldn't defeat, had a tough time defeating the Mongol cavalry, 
they when they bashed into each other, they could really weaken themselves. And that's and one of the big problems that they ran into, one of the big points of contention, was how much to continue their nomadic ways of life, or should they start to establish the kinds of traditions that other empires did, and become more sedentary, or at least have a capital. And the capital didn't last too long. Uh, and it's not too much left of it. There's only a couple of statues and sculptures, apparently, right where it was is Karakorum. But it led to dissension. In, and it, yeah, dissension might have come anyway, because some of these people wanted to rule the whole empire, and they ended up dividing it and then fighting it among the divisions. Uh, and, uh, but part of it was becoming the idea of becoming more sedentary, which wasn't totally popular. Your next case is the Ottoman Empire. One thing I found interesting here is that there were kind of uh, irrational strategic limits on the boundaries of the empire and that this often limited their ambitions with some fruitful results. Is that right? Yeah. The great question with the Ottomans, how did they rule over a really excitable part of the world for so long? They brought peace to the Middle East like nobody had before or since for centuries. And one of the ways they did it, they didn't have universal ambitions. They pretty much, their empire was just as big as they could march in one fighting season. About 600 miles away from Constantinople or Istanbul, as they renamed it. Uh, 600 miles. So people talk about how occasionally, if you're into history, you think, oh, that the Europeans were saved because there was a defensive Vienna. The Turks were coming up into Vienna and they were going to sweep into Europe. No, not really. Probably not. Because Vienna was right on the edge of their action radius, as they, as it's sometimes called, they they could get to Vienna, but no further, and they could go a little bit further at sea, because you could, but not much further. They they could you could sail more uh, in one fighting season, sail further than you could march further. But they didn't have any aspirations beyond that. They didn't build a navy that was able to be able to that, that could fight on the open seas, for instance. Uh, they could only fight in the relatively constrained Mediterranean and inland seas. They didn't try to create overseas colonies. They didn't go into Europe. They didn't try to conquer much else. So they restrained themselves and chose limits. Like Hadrian, of the Roman, the Roman emperor, the Ottomans decided where their empire needed to end. Uh, and inside that, for hundreds of years, they were safe and prosperous, and they did pretty well. But, but partially because they didn't try to go conquering far into Russia or deep into Persia. They, they would only go as far, and part of that too is because they didn't totally trust their generals. Uh, the, 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 the sultans thought that if the generals got too powerful, there would be a problem. So they did, but also, they didn't, they didn't build the kind of tools that would be necessary to extend the empire further. And because of that, they didn't spend themselves into oblivion, and they were able to maintain control and bring relative peace to that fractious neighborhood for centuries. Well, what brought about Ottoman decline? Uh, well, they, they didn't innovate. They didn't, uh, they didn't move ahead. They, essentially, they were left behind with the industri when the Industrial Revolution swept them through the rest of Europe. And part of that is because is, it relates to one of their great advantages. Uh, they had a real, it's going to sort of sound strange, but they had a really good bureaucracy. They had really good governmental organization, and it allowed them to spring back whenever they had defeats. It allowed them to keep track of what was going on throughout the entire sprawling empire. Uh, but bureaucracies don't innovate. They're not built to keep moving ahead. So the Ottomans were the last ones to adopt things like, the, even little military things like the bayonet or artillery 
or uh, a lot of different military tactics that were sweeping through Europe, the Ottoman militaries fell behind. And as the other, the other European powers grew in, 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 in strength uh, and population too, and, and got these age of nationalism armies that are gigantic armies, the Ottomans didn't keep pace. And their, their empire was picked apart, little bits and pieces over time. And by the time World War I came, they were pretty much a shadow of their former selves. And they picked the wrong side in that, that, uh, in that war. But it, it was by then, by the, you know, by the 19th century, they, was, they were losing a lot on the battlefield in ways that they had hundreds of years, in prior centuries, almost always won. They had the best army in Europe for a long, the first professional army since Rome. But it, had, it didn't keep up. And it ossified, and that and the rest of Europe, their rivals pulled ahead. What was important about Imperial Spain's strategy? The Spanish are sort of the, to some degree, the uh, warning about what not to do. Spain didn't conquer its way to a gigantic empire. It did in the New World, but in Europe it didn't. It married its way into it. The Habsburgs married, in, 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 uh, as a result of a bunch of royal marriages, inherited an enormous empire. Easily, in 16th century Europe, Spain was the strongest country. And then they, of course, conquered a bunch of parts of the New World as well. Became the first truly global empire, but they never stopped fighting. They continually were fighting. It seems everybody. Their big rival was France for a long time, but throughout the time when the Habsburgs were in charge, essentially just the reign of five emperors, five kings, they fought the British and the Turks. Constantly fighting the Turks, they fought against the forces of the Reformation. They were constantly fighting in New World, various rebellions going on. They fought the Italian states. They were, if there was a country out there, the Spanish would fight them, and they always saw themselves on the defensive. They always thought that they were victims, of course, because every country does. But they, their finances as a result were a mess. They had the best army in Europe. But they also had the best navy for a long time, and they were trying to continue keep them both. They had a big fleet in the Mediterranean, a big fleet in the Atlantic. They were try- they were bringing in silver and gold from from the New World, but counterintuitively, at least for the Spanish, that and tended to cause inflation. And as much as they could help pay their bills, it also caused economic dislocation. So it didn't last long. The Habsburg reign of dominance uh, was essentially it spent itself into oblivion by not doing the things that the Ottomans did or that Hadrian did of recognizing limits. They were fighting everybody all the time. And as a result, couldn't keep that pace going forever. And, uh, the, they're, and they, they're, by, the, by 1700 or so, the Spanish Empire was a shell of what it once was. One thing that sounds familiar in this chapter is the, and I think it comes up a couple of times in the book, is it's the influence of uh, sort of the king's court, the professional strategists and advisors, and how they may have shaped policy. You write that Philip II worried that his heir would be dominated by his advisors, saying, I'm afraid they will govern him. Uh, This is something that we know about in our own politics with respect to national security policy. Famously, Obama... Uh, struggled and f- tried to find compromises with the national security state. And uh, Trump often found himself um, undermined in terms of uh, what he might, wanna, might have wanted to do uh, militarily by his advisors. Uh, talk about this problem in Imperial Spain and, and in general. Yeah, the Spanish had a semi-official position as the favorite, the king's favorite. Which today is sort of like 
our, our national security advisor and chief of staff wrapped up into one person, somebody who the king's main minister, essentially his main advisor. And these people, if the king wasn't terribly interested in foreign policy, like some this, this Philip III, the uh, king right in the middle of the five Habsburg kings, wasn't really interested in foreign affairs as much. Therefore, his favorite ended up dominating Spanish uh, Spanish decision making. And when people talk about that era, they talk about this favorite as much as they do the king. Uh, and and, and the, the Philip IV, the next one, sort of unimaginatively named Philip IV, there's a bunch of Philips, uh, also had a very influential dominant favorite. And uh, the Spanish were obsessed with glory and with their reputation. And it would be, it would, it would in hard, like today, it's hard for U.S. foreign policy to change direction drastically because there is a foreign policy establishment or sometimes people call it the blob, but there's an official mind of the United States foreign policy. And this, the Spanish official mind, their strategic culture was, uh, they found, they put a big priority on being number one, about being the greatest, about being glorious. And their, uh, their, the advisors to the king certainly felt that way. And any, they, they would react to the slightest bit of insult to the Spanish crown and if, 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 and oftentimes with military action. And they, if, even if they are already fighting three or four wars, they'd fight another one. Uh, so it was, it was certainly a different kind of strategic culture than, say, the Tang Chinese had. Uh, they, they were much more martial and, as a result, didn't last too long as in the top position, the predominant position in Europe. Your final case study is the British Empire, which you say was the first truly global empire. Uh, one of the things I found really interesting in this chapter is maps and geopolitics and the influence that had on strategy. So you quote Prime Minister Lord Salisbury uh, saying, the constant study of maps is apt to disturb men's reasoning powers. Why did he say this and, and how did map gazing and uh, geopolitical thinking shape British strategy? Yeah, a lot of us growing up played some form of risk. I imagine you played risk. I mean, nowadays the kids may, if they play it at all, it'll be online. But we, in my day, we had a big, uh, big board, and you'd move the pieces around and try to figure out the most, the most important area on the risk board. Uh, a lot of British strategists, who were the first ones, which is sort of strange to say, strange to think, but the first ones that have really accurate maps of the world saw the world in much the same way. And the prime minister there was was lamenting how. Uh, people, he didn't, of course, use the risk analogy, but the same kind of thing. His strategists looked at the, the, the maps and the world as if it were a big game of risk. We need to dominate this part and this part uh, and, and, uh, and, and saw the world as a big, not only a big competition, but one that you can win by just moving pieces around and moving troops around and dominating areas of the sea. Uh, and it's... When you have people, sort of strange to say, strange to say, looking at maps all the time, they don't generally say they don't come to the conclusion that the Ottomans did, uh, that we should restrain ourselves to six hundred miles. They say, well, what are our interests? How do we dominate then Southeast Asia? Where are the important choke points of the naval aquatic choke points in the in the Indian Ocean? And they had to do this. They thought because they were they had this sprawling empire, and the, eventually the jewel of that crown was India. And they needed to keep the the trade lanes open, but the British Empire was drawn. Was if you think of it, the British strategists as playing a big game of risk. They're not far off, and that leads to a certain kind of thinking and a certain kind of uh, of aggression 
that the prime minister was lamenting there because he, he was right that, that uh, with, with if because maybe of those maps, the British saw the world differently, and they saw it as a something to be conquered and something and, and trying to figure out. You know, we know in risk you need to dominate Australia, like they're the boardwalk and part place of risk. There's a lot more nuance though that is missed, obviously, when you're just looking at a two dimensional map, and that's part of the problems that the British ran into over time. How were liberal ideas the undoing of the British Empire? Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that the Brits had conversations that nobody else, at least none of my cases ever did, and very few empires did, even of their time. Because while they they, they reached their zenith, it's sort of a territory in the beginning of the 20th century, but built a lot of it in the 19th century, at the same time, liberal ideas were sweeping through England about this revolutionary notion that the individual had worth. And maybe the individual and democracy and freedom were more important than imperial dominance. The Brits had conversations about the whether they're not empire is just or, or acceptable morally, ethically. The kinds of conversations that the Romans, I don't think anyone, no, no, they never had. They never worried about it. They just conquered whoever they could. The Brits started to have their conscience being tugged. Now, not everybody. And there was a big, a lot of the jingoism that went into the British Empire was a response to these anti-imperialists, these people bringing up things like liberty and liberalism and how we're, how can you be a democracy and be an empire? Is that possible? And they had to squash those elements down. Uh, and they did it with, with sort of jingoism sometimes and, you know, with uh, the Boy Scouts and various things that we see to try to... Uh, that we see still today that were built to try to increase popular uh, attention and love for the empire. But eventually they couldn't do it. Eventually, the, 20, the British Empire didn't fall because it was overthrown. It fell because, number one, the economic system no longer needed colonies. Liberal, liberalization of the economic system and trade is much cheaper than conquest. You didn't need to dominate India to profit from Indian goods. You could trade for them. And the notion that, it, that empire is just not right, that self-determination is a value and liberty is a value that overwhelms colonial dominance. So the British willingly gave up their empire because, because liberalism won the debate inside of England. And you know, it didn't win it uniformly, obviously. It didn't win it immediately. But over time, the Brits couldn't justify being a democracy and an empire. One of them had to go, and the empire went. Uh, liberalism in trade and liberalism in just in philosophy undermine the philosophical support for empire. And if you don't have that, then the empire is going to collapse pretty quickly. You write about uh, the British decision to decline gracefully, so to speak, and clear the way for America and basically appease the rise of the U.S. Um, I'm interested in this notion of decline. Uh, the historian George L. Bernstein wrote that it is not clear that the loss of empire represented any decline in real power at all. The decline was primarily a perception by Britons and others who had identified Britain's greatness with its empire. And in withdrawing, Britain may well have lost an encumbrance rather than power. Uh, that's pretty compelling to me. It would be hard to say, I think, that a single Briton was ever made worse off by the loss of this sprawling global empire. And I feel that this is perhaps 
one of the most resonant lessons in your book for U.S. foreign policy today. We have all these special roles and responsibilities and commitments, and we have all this loss aversion about them, but we would likely benefit from unencumbering ourselves, so to speak. Yeah, they both the Spanish and the British. When historians write about the empire, it's always about you know, the decline and how terrible things were. Historians like stories of glory and dominance. They 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 like to say you know who's up and who's down. It's a geopolitical historical scorecard. But for the common people of Britain and especially before them, Spain were better off without the empire. When the empire declined, the average British person did not have to pay for it anymore. They didn't have to pay for the burdens that came with it. And even though they, you know, we all sort of live vicariously through our countries and maybe their glory and, and maybe it was somewhat humiliating for them. But in general, their economic situation was uniformly better. Spain was better by every single measurable uh, every factor, every single measurable dimension. They were better off in 1800 when their most of their empire is long gone, than they were in 1650 or 1700. The average Spanish person did not have to pay this crushing tax anymore. And they they were, they were didn't have to get maybe swept up and sent off to fight in Peru or in, the, in Belgium or in Italy. The, things were better off for them. And certainly the British, they hand, when, they, when they declined, they essentially handed the baton to the United States. All these people, and I know it, it drives me crazy, and I imagine it drives you crazy too, John, when people talk about Munich all of the time. People in U.S. foreign policy circles talk about appeasement and Munich as if there's no other thing to learn from history. And they all right. learn it wrong, by the way, but they talk about how you can't appease dictators. Britain appeased its way into out of an empire in a good way. It appeased the United States on the way up. It had a long history of occasionally cooperating with or backing down to rivals, because sometimes it's cheaper to do that than to fight. And appeasement was a tool they used a lot. It's not good in every, every circumstance. No tool is. But they appeased the growth of the United States, didn't resist it. And as a result, had a, it formed a special relationship with the United States that kept the, it maintained their security as they dropped down. Uh, and they, had, they have a long history of similar types of cooperation or sometimes even capitulation rather than fighting. Knowing that especially strong countries can do that. The, when you're in a position of power, you don't really risk much by cooperating, by occasionally giving in, because you're still the strongest one. You can, Unlike a small country, they make an error uh, they, that might end up being much more catastrophic for them than the big country. We're safe. We can, we can afford to capitulate every once in a while. We don't have to fight over everything. And it's not the case that uh, when appeasement occurs, other countries just go on a rampage. There's this belief that Hitler never would have thought to conquer Europe if he hadn't been appeased at Munich, as if that wasn't his plan all along. It doesn't make any sense, but that's, I'm just getting up on a rant here. It doesn't make uh, that, uh, but the British used that tool to, uh, to, with, with good outcomes for centuries. But now, God, bring up appeasement now. If, any cooperation with Putin, appeasement. Munich, oh, every single day you see it. Doesn't matter how much, how many times historians and political science types try to shoot that analogy down, it never dies. It's like uh, it's like uh, the in the uh, Game of Thrones. What's dead can never die. The people in the uh, I'm getting off on a total rant, John. I just it drives me crazy. 
Uh, no, I hear you. Believe me. Uh, ranting on uh, the overuse of Munich analogies is uh, one thing I will always permit on this podcast. <laughs> um, one thing, well, one of the things that you do in the final chapter is is uh, emphasize the lessons of history and just the kind of the value of having a proper historical perspective. It's hard to have a good sense of where we are if we don't know where we were or or how far we've come. Give us some examples of historical progress that strategists need to keep in mind. I, I love these kinds of discussions and because people look to history to find clear lessons for things like Munich, but, uh, but they hope that if you read enough history, you're going to find answers to our current questions. And that is just not true. History doesn't teach clear lessons, and part, but it can show you the evolution of historical ideas of where we are, of how of it can show you parts of human nature and what people and states are likely to do and not do. And more importantly, it can show you how much the world has changed. I'd like to, like to ask your listeners a trivia question for you today. How many UN members have disappeared against their will in the history of the UN and not been absorbed by their neighbor or voluntarily broken up? I do mean absorbed by the neighbor, conquered. And let me just get to the answer, zero. Conquest doesn't happen anymore. Putin tried to conquer Ukraine. Saddam Hussein tried to conquer Kuwait. The closest we have, North Vietnam absorbed South Vietnam, but South Vietnam wasn't a UN member. Only had observer status, kind of BS country. Who cares? The point is, it, it the warfare is different today than it was when the Mongols were out storming, causing problems for everybody in their in their neighborhood. Uh, the, the countries don't disappear. Belgium is just as safe as the United States is. It's not going anywhere. This is new. How we treat each other, the world is better in every single imaginable way than it was 200 years ago. The rules by which international relations uh, operates are totally different from when they were from when the, the Spanish were out there and and when the tongue could, could just try to absorb neighbors. It doesn't happen anymore. So we ought to be we ought to have different rules and a different strategic approach to an era that has fundamentally different security threats and much much less serious ones in a lot of ways. No matter what happens in Ukraine, it doesn't. It's not going to affect the day to day life of the United States. And even if China takes over Taiwan, God forbid, it doesn't have to affect us. We are fundamentally safe in ways that every other country I've studied would be tremendously jealous of. The, the any diplomats of any age would trade their problems for ours because our problems are minimal and you can't at least compare we have a lot of issues a lot of problems there's climate change there's all sorts of issues going on but compared to any other time in history we have it pretty good we don't realize that we don't care we're not any happier we're still a grouchy bunch of jerks but we are much better off than almost everybody who's come before us you'd think that would make us be a little bit pleased with how things are going. It doesn't, though. So maybe a little look back at history and how bad everybody else had it would give us a little bit of, of, of solace and a little bit of a realization that, you know, we're probably going to be all right no matter what happens in Ukraine as long as we don't push it into World War III. Uh, but we, we seem to, we learn different lessons from history because we look for simple answers in ways that uh, are detrimental, generally speaking. So history can... Uh, alert us to the 
process of historical change, but there, there are also some consistencies that we can take away. So if, uh, if we try to boil down the lessons from each of these case studies of all these superpowers and their grand strategies, what are the main takeaways? How should this history inform our current strategy? Well, the main thing is you don't want to take advice from eunuchs. <laughs> There's, you'd be surprised how many people have had eunuchs advising them over time. But other than that, let's say we're not going to have eunuchs. Uh, it, it, it sort of, it's obvious to say that in order to stay in, in power, you have to, or stay dominant or stay safe and prosperous, you have to recognize limits. You have to recognize frontiers, as I talk about in the book a bit. They don't have, the, the Romans identified physical frontiers. And today, we don't have any frontiers. We have no physical frontiers. We also don't have any psychological frontiers. It seems like our interests extend everywhere, not only every part of the world, like the risk board, but every idea, every conversation we have to have input in. The United States has no limits. And we are a rich country, but we're not rich enough to operate without limits, without frontiers, at least having a conversation about where those frontiers may be. Maybe it's the frontier of, say, Crimea. Maybe we don't have to worry about what happens inside Crimea. But we don't even have those conversations. We don't have the, we, ha we reject the notion of limits entirely. And that's a recipe for spending ourselves into oblivion. Generally speaking, countries are creditors. They're loaning money on the way up and they're debtors on the way down. Now, I am not one of those who thinks the United States is in particular set of decline right now. In fact, I think this war in Ukraine shows that we're still the dominant force in the world in every measurable way. And, and militarily speaking, if this doesn't give you some pause about the rise of Russia and perhaps China, I don't know what will, but it's not going to stay that way forever if unless we limit ourselves. And maybe those limits could be broad, maybe they can be narrow, but at least having a conversation about where they could be, where our modern frontiers are, will help us moving forward. There's got to, if everything is in the, in the world is important to us, then really nothing is important. And we're going to be, that's a recipe for disaster. We have to figure out gradations of importance. And at the very least, and maybe some frontiers about where we will and will not intervene. Chris Fetweiss, thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, it is my pleasure. I get fired up. Thank you for having me.